Welcome to Film Spotting with Adam Kempinar. I'm Josh Larson. This is our special podcast. It's our fourth installment of our Satyajit Ray Marathon, but actually the fifth film that we'll talk about as part of this ongoing series. As always, these are our chances to catch up with the filmographies of uh, famous, well-known, regarded filmmakers that we've just never been able to really become familiar with or genres sometimes we'll do. Sometimes they're regional cinemas that we'll explore. In this case, it is the filmography of Satyajit Ray. I've mostly been making my way through this, Adam, on my own. But for the big city, for this film, I was able to sit down and watch it with Debbie. Interestingly, she's in the midst of a job transition, so I thought it might be a relaxing (laughs) distraction from the brain power and stress that that involves. Turns out I should have at least looked at the big city's plot description, because this is a movie that focuses on a housewife in 1950s Calcutta who enters the brave new world of employment against most of her family's wishes to sell sewing equipment door to door. Despite some major differences in time and culture, obviously, plus the fact that Debbie's been a working mom for most of our kids' lives, the big city couldn't have spoken more directly to the hopes and concerns that we've both been going through. The moods, tensions, the excitement that comes with being a two-parent working household. It didn't turn out to be a distracting viewing experience for her, but I think it was a consoling one. I never would have guessed that an Indian film from 1963 would elicit so many knowing chuckles from the other end of the couch. I think this speaks both to the universality and the delicacy of Ray's filmmaking, the way he can capture family rhythms, especially in the Opu trilogy, that are familiar no matter what the time or place. I'd like to get your take on how that universality worked or maybe didn't work for you with The Big City, especially in comparison to the other Ray films we've seen. But I'm also interested in talking about the more general idea of a movie's universal appeal. As Western viewers, can we give too much weight to the universality of a film from another culture? Is that fair, or might it be a limited way for us to formulate a response to a foreign language movie? Does it really matter, in other words, how universal a movie might be? Well, first let me say, I hope that your in-laws are less tiresome and less of a burden than the in-laws in the big city. We did move them out of that side room, and that's helped. Good, good. That's probably smart. Well, I think... That approach could be limiting in the same way viewing any piece of art through a certain prism might be limiting. And I don't know if you were thinking of this or not, but you do risk sounding as if you're saying, wow, those foreigners are just like us. Yes. You probably don't want to come off like exactly. that. That said, I guess when you ask, does it matter? I wonder if universality, personally connecting to any piece of art, whether it's from another culture, another time, whatever, isn't in fact the most important response we can have. All art on some level I would argue, is existential in nature. We're watching characters in movies struggle with being human, with the human experience. The same questions. Exactly. And looking at the big city, the more specifically and thoroughly Ray dramatizes the struggles of this woman, Arati, it's mainly about her, as you said. It's about her transition into working life. And, of course, there are other characters who get their due as well. But she's really the focus. And I think the more that he focuses on her, And the way she belongs to this class, in this case, the professional lower middle class in this city, Calcutta, in this country, India, in this time, as you said, the early 60s, the more people of any gender or class or country and time can find aspects to relate to, even if some of the details are different. I don't know that the those little details really matter when you have a piece of art like this film is that really gets the bigger picture things so correctly. And if that all sounds a little bit grandiose, 
you can blame this movie. You can blame Satyajit Ray because I think this film is just a masterpiece. Yeah. We've talked so much during this marathon specifically about tradition versus modernity. And that's one of the real pleasures of these marathons when we are focusing on one filmmaker. We really don't come in with any set expectations. I haven't studied Ray's work at all. Hadn't seen a single film by him. So I had no sense of what his sort of general concerns were, or if there were going to be themes running through his work as an auteur, if you will, what might we be able to latch onto? Didn't really know. But this question about that battle between tradition versus modernity really is the key struggle here. It informs all of the professional conflicts, the personal and family conflicts, whether it's along gender lines or along age or race. And there's this key line at one point that I think Arati says, I meant to go back and check, but she says, change happens by necessity. And it's so true. As a basic fact, necessity will often lead to change. But more philosophically, I read that as sort of a double meaning, where it seems to often only happen that way. Throughout all of these movies, and certainly here, we're seeing many characters who are resistant to change, and they're only dragged into it, kicking and screaming. And so these central questions here, what's a woman's role now? This is also the first film we've seen in this Ray Marathon, where he's in the time He's making True. the film. He's been dealing with the past and having it inform the present. Here he's making a film that takes place ostensibly in the early 60s. What's your role when you were already a wife, a mother, a daughter-in-law, a sister-in-law, a housekeeper, a cook, and a nurse? We see all of that on display in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Now add to that employee, coworker, friend, supervisor, breadwinner. And you see with both sets, there are tremendous demands. But the former are all very defined. There's set expectations there, which is a burden in its own right, but at least you know what you're getting into. These new roles are all less defined. Everyone involved is learning them and making up the rules as they go. There aren't these decades or centuries of tradition to guide you or restrict you. And that's the thrill of it. And that's the curse of it. And we see both of those sides throughout the running time of this film. And it really does capture both the thrill and the curse. That's mm -hmm. what was so enjoyable about watching it. And also the reason I think it persists and speaks beyond cultures and beyond years is because all of these social concerns, the ones that you were talking about, the roles that are played out, are rooted in the individual and not just in Arati. They, he follows the repercussions here for everyone in this household mm -hmm. uh, to the tiniest detail so that we can sense, it's mostly her journey, but we can sense how it does affect the others, what they're making of it, how they're trying to wrap their minds around it too. And it becomes this full picture of a family that's experiencing this societal change, not just the societal change itself that happens to have this figure in the middle that represents our interests, where right. we're supposed to put our focus. And I did think about that universality question a little bit with this because it is a common claim when a movie, even today, when a new movie from another country ends up making waves in the U.S., what you'll hear often in the review is everyone will be able to relate to it. These are the same, you know, which is true. And I think that is a strength. But it also, I was thinking, is that reductive? Is there more there that we should be looking for and should be respecting a film for? And the way I eventually thought about it is I think it really is a case-by-case -case basis, a film-by-film basis. For some, that's maybe more of a relevant 
um, element than in other films. It certainly shouldn't be this standard that foreign films should be held to, but it's also not a feature that they should be penalized for if they are universal in some way. And I do think it's particularly fair. It seems to me it's particularly fair when it comes to Ray, because especially after reading the, the book that you got us, My Years with Opu, the autobiography in a sense, or the memoir, really. I just finished it today. And in the beginning, he talks a lot about how his interest in cinema developed. And he was very immersed in Western art, Hollywood films, for sure, but also Western classical music. So this is a guy where it makes sense that there may be some, he may be able to be cross-cultural because he already been that sort of figure and had that sort of training himself. So I think in his case in particular, it makes sense to uh, compare how some of the things he's saying might translate a little bit better. At the same time, I want to leave room for experiences like Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, the Thai film from a couple of years ago. Which where, you can relate to. I, I mean, There's a whole other side to your life I'm not aware exactly. of. Exactly. At some point, you do have to say, unless you've deeply studied a culture, wow, this is gorgeous. I'm picking up on elements here that are recurring that I think this is what it might be about. But 70% of this film, I'm completely lost. I'm loving it, but I'm lost. So mm-hmm. just another way of saying that each film does have to be taken on its own. This, though, The Big City treasured it for the way that, again, it just did echo personally for me, but also so artistically in the way that it does capture these struggles. And once again, as we've been talking about throughout this series, the way that Ray does it with the camera, it starts from the opening shot, which seems like the simplest thing in the world, the trolley cars that run down the Calcutta streets. It's a shot of the electric line that's going ahead. The camera's moving along with it as the credits roll. So it's going on for quite some time. That's it, except for when it crosses another electric line and we get a little spark. And it's beautifully evocative of this journey that Arati is on. She's got this straight line ahead of her of tradition as the housewife. That's where she should be going. But there are these offshoots that are possibilities that spark with Mm -hmm. possibilities. She takes one and we get to follow along for the rest of the film. Yeah, I think we're going to talk a lot about the camera here and how the visuals really inform everything we see. But I want to talk a little bit about gender some more because I really saw this character, Arati, and it's not a surprise. Now, based on these films, we watch the Apu trilogy. The main character, Apu, in the name there is a boy who becomes a man, and yet at least half of the Apu trilogy, I would say, Father Panchali, the first film, and then half of the second film, are really focused, I would say, on the mother. Mm -hmm. I think the mother is the main character. Aparahito, for sure. Exactly. And during our discussion of Father Panchali, I focused on what was my favorite scene in this marathon, this soliloquy that the mother has. Her name is Sarbajaya. And it's almost a bit of magic realism because there's a conversation happening, I want to say after dinner, between husband and wife. And he just sort of zones off and she has this soliloquy. It's like something that should belong on a stage where she's talking to the audience, even though she's really talking to her husband, who, as I said, is completely zoned out at this point. And she expresses this longing and all this inner desire for something more with her life. And a couple of her lines are, you will not understand these things. You're absorbed in your work. Sometimes you get paid. Sometimes you don't. I had dreams, too, about all the things I would do. So evocative, so heart-wrenching. And I really saw Arati here as directly connected to her, maybe even a spiritual successor, if you will. And she has a soliloquy just like that, again, early in this film, where her husband goes to sleep. And she keeps talking anyway and expresses everything she's feeling and all of her inner longings when she realizes that, wait a second, this path I thought I was on 
suddenly I realize I could go a different direction. I can work too. I can change my life. I can change my family's life. And when we go back and hear those lines from Father Panchali, we don't really know what she means by what dreams she might have had. But she talks about the things I would do, and I had dreams too. And so I watch Arati in this film, and the same thing is at play here. As an individual, separate from the culture and tradition and all of her responsibilities, she's going to get to live out that dream. We're going to see what happens when that mother character, that wife character, that caregiver finally gets to break out from that and redefine herself. And there are going to be thrills along with that, and there are going to be heavy, heavy struggles as well. But I'm with you, Josh, that for me, the most exciting thing about this movie was seeing Ray just continue to evolve as a filmmaker. And this is a guy, let's be clear, who made a masterpiece with his yeah, first movie. He seemed he to have it knew. down. Yeah, he knew what he was doing with the camera right away. But in terms of not being beholden to any tradition himself as a filmmaker or any old way of doing things that he had bought into and was just going to keep hitting, he is going to keep finding new and interesting things to do with the camera. And there are at least three kind of breathtaking moments for me in this film. And maybe we'll get to all of them. But the two I want to focus on are this handheld camera shot. That happens when they take the bus for the first time as a husband and wife to her first day Mm -hmm. on the job. I actually, watching this on DVD, I actually rewound it just to make sure that I saw what I saw. It's so jostling. Yeah, because we've seen now five movies. And he does, as I said, lots of interesting things with the camera. But I had never seen a shot like that in his work at all. And it's a case where, the two shots I'm going to mention here, it's a case where it's not just that he's doing something a little bit inventive, something we haven't seen before, even though that is what jostles you a little bit, but because the camera is literally, in this case, and figuratively changing our perspective on these characters and the world. So that moment when they get off the bus, she's walking into her office, and it's just a 10 to 12 second tracking shot, quote unquote, handheld shot following them down the street. And even though it's so short, it's this almost direct cinema, cinema verite type moment on the street in the sense of urgency and the energy it conveys. It signifies that a shift has taken place. There's no going back from this point. All the discussion about it, the filling out the application, the getting the job, the going to work. Now it's real. She is walking up to that door and she's going to walk in and their life is never going to be the same. And the camera shows us that. And it brought me back a little bit to Albert Mazels, who we talked about on our last podcast, paying a little bit of a tribute to him and that direct cinema technique. This is at a time when direct cinema is taking off late 50s, early 60s. Robert Drew, other filmmakers like D.A. Pennebaker. And it's not so surprising to see Ray as we said, moving the camera. He's never been stiff or pedestrian in what he does with it. But I have to think he must have recognized that new technology was making it possible to capture life in new ways. And he applied it there. And seeing that was was really something. And the other one that we'll come back to maybe for me that really stands out is at the end of the film, where we, again, see the world in a completely different way after a discussion, a conversation between husband and wife where they resolve to face this together. And what he shows us of the city and how he shows us the city is something we haven't seen throughout the whole rest the of the film. The final shots yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're magical. The one for me that really jumped out too is something apart from anything he'd done before is the parade essentially when the women from the office where Arati has started working, they mm-hmm. go out for their morning to start selling the equipment door to door. Right. He gives them each this shot 
individually, yeah. notably walking down the street. Some of them are really confident. Some mm-hmm. of them are a little more unsure. But it's sort of this idea that the women are out there. Yeah. Here they come. They're on their own, whether the world's ready for yeah, them Almost saying like not. the Armageddon astronauts individually <laughs> walking. Yeah. It is a little bit. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that. And it just has this power and it's tracking away from them. And again, just jumped out at me as something different, but so, so right. I think Bay's heavily influenced by Ray. <laughs> Obviously. So you talked about the husband in Father Panchali and there is that parallel scene for sure where the wives are expressing their dreams and the husbands aren't really listening. But this is a very different guy, the husband here. He is. Played by Anil Chatterjee. Yes, I loved watching his journey. He's just so, he's rooted in tradition. The the Mm -hmm. early scenes are very much about establishing the patriarchy she operates under. And it's a a gentle patriarchy. He, He comes home from work and she starts talking to the son before serving him tea, which is apparently a no, no. He chides her for it. He's, he's joking mostly, but he's kind of not. Yeah. But that's their relationship. They understand that this is the system they live under. That's the reason he behaves towards her this way more than that. It's naturally how he feels towards her in their interactions. They're very much on the same page. And so watching this guy just have his identity reshaped as his wife goes out to work and he does, you know, put his foot down in a more firm way that's unnatural to him later Mm -hmm. because he feels like he's forced to. But in general, uh, just watching him be absolutely confused when he comes across lipstick in her purse that she started to wear when she's making her calls and he just doesn't even know how to wrap his mind around that. Now, it's completely unfair that we've mentioned that actor, Anil Chatterjee, before we've mentioned the woman who plays Aradi, and that's Madhabi Mukherjee. This is a powerhouse performance in the way that she just roots this movie around her every move without ever feeling like she's dominating it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, totally. she she controls mm-hmm. every scene without pushing anyone else to the side. It's this this immensely generous way of understanding that it is Arati's story, but it is one that very much affects and includes everyone mm-hmm. else in this family. And this actress here just blossoms as the movie goes on mm-hmm. because you can see um, her feeling that the job is something that's really allowing her to explore and allow another side of herself to flourish. And she appreciates that while at the same time understanding that there is a cost to her family, something her mother-in-law lords over her head a little bit. Her son, her young son, you know, gives mm-hmm. her a lot of grief about right. it until she's able to buy him a toy. Um, and she just handles all of that with, again, the same word that I keep coming back to in a lot of these Ray films, delicacy. Yeah, that's a good word for it. And I agree with you about Mukherjee. I didn't think there was any chance that I would see a female performance in this Ray Marathon that I would enjoy more than the mother from the Apu trilogy. And then she comes along and this film comes along and looking to our awards on our next show here, I don't know how she's not going to win the best actress when we hand those out because she is astonishing. And you're so right about the husband. That was something I made note of as well, because this movie probably still would have been pretty good if the husband had been more adversarial, if he had been a little bit more like his father, who is violently opposed to the wife working outside Perhaps the home. Perhaps it would have been more representative to the reality of the time if, exactly. it, if it had gone that exactly. way. Exactly, but making this truly a movie that's more about a partnership, about a marriage, getting the sense that they really are in this together, they're in this struggle together, and that he's on her side, that only then heightens the fact that as he does start to slip away from her, as they start to disconnect from each other, that makes that even more 
powerful to watch. And I think that journey he goes on is one where we can sit here all day and say we're enlightened men and we would follow our wives as they went on any kind of journey like this. But you know what? He only starts to turn on her a little bit when he's put in more compromising positions in situations where even though watching it now, we think, okay, I kind of wish he'd back off and let her do her thing. You still have to understand that maybe I can relate to him a little bit. I might find myself in those same situations being jealous of my wife, being jealous of my wife as the breadwinner, or why is she putting the lipstick and the sunglasses on and she's riding around with men in the car when she would never do something like that before. Those are justifiable, if somewhat slippery and seemingly trivial. Those are understandable reactions when your world has been turned upside down. And the fact that we see that and we recognize that means that we're not just on her journey we're on his journey as well so that marriage aspect to this film it fits right along with the world of opu for me as being one of the best movies about marriage i've ever seen my favorite scene between the two of them might be involving that lipstick where they've really reached an impasse here mm-hmm. and it's not just over the lipstick but it's kind of the inciting detail and she says something to the effect of please don't misunderstand me grabs the lipstick out of her purse and tosses it out their window. Yep. And they don't have this hugely emotional reunion. Yeah. The scene just kind of drifts away there. Yet it, They also don't have a huge fight. A huge no, melodramatic fight. fight either, right? And but it struck me as one of one of the more romantic gestures I've seen in a Without film. Without a doubt, the lipstick toss happens before the line. I love that line so much. I went back today and wrote it down in my notes. She says because she first is stunned. She can't believe that he's even sort of accusing her of something and he's got his back turned to her and he won't face her. And she's probably a little bit disappointed in herself too and feeling maybe even a little bit guilty. There's a lot of different ways we can read into it because the performance is so good and it's all so subtle. But then she does throw it out the window and then she says to him before she goes, do what you like but please don't misunderstand me, darling. Such a good line and again is about ultimately their relationship and how she's not going to turn this into a big melodramatic fight. She's not going to try to assert her will over him. She's just going to say in the most eloquent succinct way possible Basically, do what you please. I understand that you're going to be angry about things, that we're going to have problems, but just at the end of the day, don't misunderstand me. Don't take for granted that we're not in this together. It's such a good line. And that's why it's not an act of submission either. Just describing it, maybe you read that, oh, well, she's giving in to what he's worried about. And it's not that at all. She turns and goes bringing them back together is Mm -hmm. what she's trying attempting to do there yeah exactly right and i mentioned a few other shots i do want to get to them because that second shot the one near the end of the film and i'm guessing most people listening to this have probably seen the movie or they're not listening to a 30 to 35 minute discussion of this film but i do want to dance around it a little bit because we haven't spoiled anything yet and if you're listening and you haven't seen it i want you to see this movie but at the end there is a final showdown if you will between Arati and her boss and then later a conversation with her husband and they go downstairs and they have this big talk and as they walk out it shows them first of all we see this point of view shot where she looks up at the building in front of her the structure in front of her and we really haven't seen any of the buildings in Calcutta up to this point from that perspective in terms of their size and she says basically This is a big city. That's where the title line comes from. And you see that something is changing in her mind. She's having another epiphany about how they can move forward with their lives. And 
after that, they walk out into the street. And this is really the first time where we have seen Calcutta before it's been quick shots or it's been out the boss's window. Even on the bus, those are a lot of close-ups. We don't really see the people around them. We don't get a sense of the scale of Calcutta up until this point where we see them walk out into this bustling urban center, this new world that for them is truly a new world because they're seeing it with new eyes and them mingling within it. And it's also kind of another verite moment where you are watching it, realizing that the camera is blocks away, maybe, or at least sure. a block away. And it's not on a film set. It's actually capturing the actors walking amidst regular people going to their job or whatever they're doing. So that moment, that's another jolt. Even though it's subtle, it jolts you nevertheless because you're understanding something new about them. You're understanding something new about their future just because of the camera, just because of how he tilts it at one point and how he then wides out at one point to see the whole scope of the city. That's remarkable. It's remarkable stuff. And then the camera tilts up and ends on this lovely little grace note uh, that that completes the film, which That's I won't true. give away, but but I really like to. All right, one one more magnificent shot I've got to get to. Well, I've got we one more I have to mention oh, too. Okay. We'll see if it's the same it one. It might be the same one. So this is in the coffee shop where she's meeting, I believe it's a prospective client, mm -hmm. someone she knows or she knows his husband wife, of a least. friend. Yeah. yeah. So it's her and this other man and her husband happens to be there. He was already seated and he sees them come in, hides behind the paper. And so they're seated at a table, there's initially a shot where you can see Arati talking to this man and her husband is off in the background mm -hmm. and you see his Spying. reactions as he listens to them. She doesn't really do anything untoward, but in the way that she talks about him, it it's something of a betrayal. You could describe it that way. The scene ends with the camera just panning ever so slightly to the right. And what it allows, there's this mirrored wall or a pole almost mm -hmm. in the coffee shop that has mirrors on it. So it allows Arati and the man she's talking to to be on the left side of the frame. Her, the man, and her husband reflected in the mirror in the middle and the husband alone on mm -hmm. the right. And again, you mentioned the briefness of that jostling handheld shot. I think this is maybe on screen for three seconds yeah. when it's something that is so intricate and complicated. It, not to harp on the immigrant again, but <laughs> there is a very complicated, intricate shot in yeah. last year's The, the Immigrant best moment that was in the film. praised to high heavens. Mm -hmm. I found a little overdone appreciated the artistry but the way it just sort of sat on that and closed the film on it and I, it's like 30 seconds maybe is like a watch me moment here we have something just as complicated just as artistic and it sort of drifts over catches it and then goes away mm -hmm. and i just love how so many of the really beautiful moments in these films are fleeting ones well i have one that's similar it follows it can't be more than five or ten minutes after that where things are really kind of falling apart at the seams with this marriage and it's specifically tied to the father-in-law who becomes really ill at one point he's had health problems throughout the entire film and it's a scene late at night after they've had this drama with the father-in-law and she's asleep She's now the one laying in bed. The husband's still awake. And he's sitting behind, I don't know if you'd call it a curtain or like some muslin that is between them. And he's smoking a cigarette while she's laying next to him. And this is the husband at his most distraught, his most psychologically fractured. He has had to deal with not only his father being ill, but the father mentions how he told friends of his or former students of his, actually, that his own son can't even take care of him. I mean, really, as a son, what's the worst thing you could possibly hear? There's really a sense that he's recognizing 
more than at any other point in the film that he's a failure in a lot of ways. This is a reflection on him yes, that she's working. For sure. And sitting behind that curtain, smoking in the dark, the sequence is punctuated. And again, it can't be more than about 10 seconds, but it's punctuated by this shot where he's in a shadow. And just as the smoke changes and his head changes a little bit, any slight turn of the head reveals there's two of him. Mm. There's a shadow and there's the real thing. And as you watch it at first, you're not sure which one is really him and which one is the shadow. And at one point, Josh, I wish I had it in front of us. It's so good. At one point, as he slightly turns, you recognize it as almost two distinct faces. It's not a shadow anymore. There's two of him there behind that curtain. There is a real psychological split clearly at play. And whether it was mostly a happy accident or not in that moment, it doesn't matter. It's such a beautiful, beautiful shot that expresses, as this camera has done throughout this whole film, as we've talked about, expresses so much and says exactly what it needs to say without trying to say it at all. You know, you mentioned the father-in-law. That's a whole nother subplot that gets some rich attention as well. We haven't really gotten into about how he represents this other era and goes out, as you said, seeking these former students of his looking for freebies, essentially, because the family is not destitute, but in need of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, the scenes that it gives to the father-in-law to help us understand, not only give him a story, and again, how Arati's decision is affecting him, but also gives us this context for the society that they live in. Happens to include an amazing shot, too, with the eye doctor. Yeah, the good close point. Up, so. Yeah, yeah. And some more great use of the camera when he's walking up the stairs and he kind of has a little bit of an attack where you see it coming just because of the way the camera is used there. But a couple of things I did want to just mention here because it just speaks to the experience I had with this movie and how much I really loved it. The way some of that dialogue is used, we already mentioned the lines and how powerful some of the lines are without being overly explicit that's what really gives them some of the power there's that great scene on the bus where they're going to that first day of work and she says something like pintu their son this would be his bath time and the husband says he'll get a bath and she says i know he will again double meanings that's the problem he will get a bath he'll get a bath She's not needed. She's not the one doing it. Exactly. So it's not the concern that the husband thinks on its face that, well, if she's not there, maybe this won't happen. No, it'll happen. That's really what bothers her more than anything else is that she might be expendable after all, that the house doesn't need her when she's gone and she's not going to be there to have that moment with him. So there's great moments like that. And then also something we talked about with at least one other film. I want to say maybe it was the music room. It was the music room, the last film we discussed where the, Symmetry, the repetition of certain moments of lines of expressions and how sometimes Ray will turn them on its head. And in the turning, you really recognize something dramatic is happening. There's a line again. I'll go back to the bus where near the end of it, he says something like, I'm more worried about Pintu's mother than Mm -hmm. Pintu. And it's not really a case where watching it, you feel like he's overly concerned, but he is considering the prospect there in that moment of how this whole endeavor might change her and change their lives and their dynamic. That specific phrasing is altered and repeated later during one of their confrontations when they're at their lowest. And in that moment, that really reflects how he can't believe what she's become, where he was sort of thinking, could this happen? Maybe there's a possibility now in that moment by inverting that, it draws our attention back to it. And we see that obviously that's exactly what's happened. That little bit of a concern has now grown into a full-blown problem. There's just no part of this film 
that there hasn't been given some thought to and a lot of care. Sure. And there's some wordplay, too, in one of those scenes where she just says offhandedly, you wouldn't recognize me at work. And I think yeah. his response is, would I recognize you at home? Yeah. And that leads to another wonderful short little exchange between them. Indeed. So this film is great. And I do wonder here on a parting shot, Josh, since we're discussing on this week's podcast on film spotting proper, we're talking about Cinderella. Yes. Not the masterpiece, let's say, that this film is. But did you think at all that it was a bit of coincidence spotting that we watched this movie, The Big City, all about this woman, all about this woman who is someone who defies sort of what tradition and culture and what expectations are for her, who defines herself by being overly good and overly kind and fighting for justice. And then we're talking about Cinderella, where you have a character who says just because it's done doesn't mean it should be done and who operates similarly. I mean, I feel like on some level, not as explicit, certainly, but in this film, this notion of having courage and being kind applies to the heroine of this story as well. It does, but there are also some much more traditional roles embraced by that Cinderella. And I think one of the things we'll talk about is whether that's a step backwards in the world of princess movies or a step forward. So mm. it'll be interesting to get into that. Well, we're going to close here actually with just a little bit of feedback. And Josh, I'll give you here the sheet so you can share some of this dialogue as well. But we got an email from James Hawes in Montreal and it starts with a poem. He says, you get the fire going and I'll show you something new, a fresh ball of snow. That's Basho, translated by Peter Van Torn. He writes, This haiku by Basho always comes to my mind when I watch the films of Satyajit Ray. In it, Basho conveys how humanity is always shifting from the snow to the fire, how that contrast defines us. Ray's films are always exploring that idea of contrast, whether it's the contrast between the rural and the urban in the Apu trilogy, the aristocracy and the nouveau riche in the music room, or the traditional ideas of domesticity and the modern ideas of what a woman's role should be in the big city. As his characters navigate these contrasts, they either grow from them, as in the case of Apu, are destroyed by them, in the case of Roy in the music room, or in the case of Arati in the big city, are emboldened by them. The tension between these contrasts is like a pulse in these films, which is why I find Ray's films to feel like living, breathing things. The Big City was the one film in your marathon that I hadn't seen before, and as I adore all the other films of his I have seen, I was nervous that this one wouldn't measure up. While it is a small movie when compared to some of his others, except Sharyulata, which we'll discuss later, I found it just as compelling and moving. I have read that the ending has been criticized for being too optimistic. While I understand that, I have to disagree. I could go on and on, which I'm sure you understand, as you seem to be finding Ray's films as rich and rewarding as I always have. Arati's in-laws alone could fill an entire essay. Yeah, yeah. we barely got to him. I'll just say I love this film and I am looking forward to your views. Well, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion, James, and we look forward to hopefully getting some more feedback here as we have one more film in the marathon to discuss. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks and we will share our Ray Marathon Awards. So if you have a good name for a title for the Marathon Awards, please share that with us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And again, if you have email feedback or a voicemail feedback about your experience with this marathon or maybe your experience previously with Ray's films, we welcome it and we just might share it on that next show. And to go back real quick, Josh, to Mukherjee's performance and how great it is today when I was looking up her name and making sure I knew a little bit about her, I was overjoyed to see that she's also the star of the next film, the last film in our marathon, Charulata. I figured he would have to use her again. Yeah. Man, so good. I really want to see what other work she's done. She's a legend in Indian cinema, and after seeing this film, I understand why. If this is the first 
Ray discussion that you've heard or you just want to see the whole lineup, whatever it is, all the information, filmspotting.net and click on marathons. Marathons.